This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay Lusher-Shoot. I live and farm in the 19th Congressional District of New York State. It's a very large and very rural district that's also a swing district. It was held by Congressman John Faso and before him Chris Gibson for several terms. They were both Republicans. Last year, we had a very contentious and very expensive race for Congress here. It was nationally watched because of the political makeup of the district. And Antonio Delgado, a Democrat, eventually prevailed. He won. Like Faso and Gibson, he joined the Ag Committee to represent the many farmers in this district, like me. Congressman Delgado came into the studio last month. We talk about the race how he's working to represent the range of political opinions and viewpoints here in this district, and how he's hoping to help local farmers. Hi, I'm Emily from Three Springs Farm in Oaks, Oklahoma. I've been a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition since 2011 because I believe in having representation in Washington for young farmers. For $35 a year, you can join too. In addition to being part of a bright and just future for agriculture in the United States, you'll also get discounts like 10% off So True Seed and 10% off Farm Tech. To join, go to youngfarmers.org. Today, I'm very pleased to have my own member of Congress, Antonio Delgado. Thank you for and having me. Thanks so much for being here and being on the program. Okay, so... The, f- the first question I wanted to ask you is you ran an incredibly tough race here, right, in, in the Hudson Valley in yes. New York 19. You had uh, six other challengers in the Democratic primary, all very strong. It was really down to the wire. And then you ran against uh, an incumbent. This district has been held for many terms over by um, Republicans and it was one of the most expensive races in the country, and there were all of these attack ads on your character, on your former music career. And I just wonder, what was it like for you finally winning this district on election night? Yeah, it was an amazing feeling. Um, you know, I had a, a rush of different kinds of emotions, you know, elation, relief, um, excitement, joy. You know, there was definitely a lot of weight that um, came with it as well, understanding the role um, that I now was going to be uh, stepping into. You know, but I think more than anything, uh, the the strongest d- uh, emotion that I felt um, was hope. Uh, mm. I just felt that we overcame a lot. And by we, I mean the community, you know, the entire district and all the folks who volunteered and all the folks who came out to vote, um, you know, we, uh, leaned into our shared values and our principles, even beyond politics. Um, I think there was a, a moral call to action in so many respects, and um, we answered the call. And I think for me to be um, a part of that process um, is incredibly meaningful, uh, and it's something that lives in me to this day. So you had you had moved out of the district before running, and then of course um, moved back prior um, to the campaign. But I just wondered, did you, had you always intended to to run for public office? Like why? No. Why did you Why did you make this move, and why was it so important to you? Because it's it's no small thing to take on a race like this. Yeah, I've always been uh, politically uh, inclined in that you know I'm a student of both philosophy and political science. I did my graduate work 
in political theory. You know, I was very active politically on back in college. And even when I did my music, the reason why I felt compelled to do it was to make a political statement. Mm. Um, so I've always been uh, politically oriented. Uh, but for the vast majority of my life, I've been turned off by you know, traditional politics, mm -hmm. uh, particularly at the federal level where you have so much money, so much superficiality, uh, the influence of, you know, special interest groups. Um, you know, it just felt like it was too much to stomach. And uh, as I got older, I had a family um, and thought about, you know, where I was in my life. I was working at a law firm and, and I was happy there, but, you know, it was a lot different than the work I was doing in the music space. Provide a lot of good training for me, but I knew in my heart there was more for me to give uh, in the public square. And as uh, the election uh, unfolded in 2016, I just thought a lot about home. My mm. wife and I are from home. She's from Woodstock. Uh, you know, I'm from Schenectady. And thinking about what's been happening uh, economically and how stories like mine, where you can grow up working class and, uh, you know, watch your family, you know, work its way up. Those stories aren't happening anymore. And we stopped prioritizing education, and, but education was everything for me. And the more and more I see us coming undone as a country and all the divisiveness and the partisanship, the more I thought about the question why. And the why for me was, is there's an illusion uh, of scarcity. And rather than have enough leaders out there who are trying to figure out how to bring us together to deal with that and share in our prosperity, we have too many folks at the highest levels of government who are exploiting that illusion. And it's forcing us to turn tribal Hmm. and forcing us to turn to turn uh, inward or to close ranks, which is not American. And as somebody who I think is, in essence, the, the, the product of our American values and dreams, um, I have an obligation to step up and, and, and do right by the path that was laid by those who came before me. So that's it. I mean, that, that was the thing that kind of motivated me uh, with all the warts uh, that come with this <laughs> process. And there are a lot of them, hmm. I think, at core, you, you know, it's a very important job. And, and it, you know, it's important that we have people in place who actually care about people, who love people, who, who want to give back to their communities. Um, and that's what I'm here to do. You mentioned tribalism, and I see that on both sides, right? Um, conservatives and liberals. I feel like in a swing district, by virtue of the fact that it is truly so divided, and the New York 19th um, is a good example of this, you have to sort of meet in the middle, so to speak. There, there, there has to be some uh, common ground. And like, number one, what do you think other, the country and other members of Congress should learn from swing districts? And in the New York 19th, how are you, how are you planning on sort of building that constituency and bringing people together? Because it's hard. It is, it is hard. But, you know, as you know, New York 19 um, is unique. It's a third Democrat, a third independent, a third Republican. It's a true purple district and um it survived the epidemic that is gerrymandering um which is creating these incredibly uh blue and red uh districts and undermines any chance of real bipartisan work um you know for me uh serving a district like ours you're right it's important that i do the work across the district uh across the political spectrum uh, to build the bridges and to make sure that people understand that I'm here to serve everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and more often than not, when you are put in that position, you uh, are able to find common ground. You're able to figure out uh, what those bread and butter issues are, um, those kitchen table issues are that matter to people, no matter their political persuasion. And even if 
um, how you solve that problem, uh, whatever it is may differ, if you can at least first and foremost highlight it, uh, pinpoint it, uh, and prioritize it, uh, you can at least get more and more folks to the table to engage. Uh, and if we're going to deal with hard problems like climate change, mm -hmm. you know, like the healthcare crisis, like wage stagnation, um, like income inequality, these are complicated issues uh, in a politically diverse uh, country and at the size of ours. Um, we don't have any choice but at the very first level to figure out how to speak with each other across the aisle because mm -hmm. otherwise we're not going to get anything done. So it's imperative um, that we take our cues from districts like this one right. um, where members um, are put in the situation uh, to engage with everybody across the aisle. And I'm proud, uh, very proud to do that work. I'm also proud to sponsor legislation like H.R. 1, uh, which requires states uh, to have independent commissions to draw congressional districts as opposed to having elected officials who are certainly going to act at a self-interest more mm -hmm. often than not, unfortunately, uh, and they thereby create these partisan seats. What do you know about the Hudson Valley, about New York 19, that um, might be surprising to people? Well, what's surprising, I mean, interestingly enough, is people's perception of what the state of New York actually is, mm. right? I mean, if you talk to folks um, outside of New York or even sometimes people in New York, uh, it's as if upstate New York in the Hudson Valley <laughs> in the Catskills doesn't exist, you know. Uh, you mean in New York City? Yes. Yeah, the, right. the city, the, in essence, the state of New York is New York City. <laughs> That's how people talk about it. You know, I'll tell folks in, in D.C. that I represent, um, you know, the, the third most rural district of any Democrat in, in the country, mm. the eighth most uh, of any uh, member, Republican or um, or Democrat, and their mouths, you know, drop. Wow, that's, incre that's incredible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of folks don't appreciate that. <laughs> Learning something. Um, and, but it's a fact. Yeah. The third most rule of any Democrat. Is that um, is that based on, like, um, population, population density? Population density. Yeah. I think also we have, what, 5,000 or so uh, farmers, a little over 5,000, 8,000 farm operations, a strong uh, presence with dairy farmers up in Delaware and, you know, Montgomery and Sullivan, everywhere, all throughout the district beef farms, vegetable, fruit, vegetable farms, grain, just a host of small, um, you know, family-owned farms uh, that uh, function as the backbone, um, you know, of uh, our economic opportunities here. And they need a lot of support. Uh, and too often the focus in these conversations uh, is on mega farmers or, or corporate farms or, you know, commodity farming uh, to, to the detriment of uh, our local farmers. So um, I'm proud to be on the Ag Committee. Um, I'm proud to be a voice for this region mm. um, on the Ag Committee to fight for the kinds of programs uh, that I think can actually develop the local markets that we need here uh, through investment infrastructure uh, to help our farmers uh, in an ever more competitive environment. Yeah, so you've been doing, it's it's uh, great that you're on the Ag Committee, certainly as a farmer here um, and from the Young Farmers Coalition perspective. It's, it's great to have you part of that leadership. I know you've been talking to farmers uh, yes, and conducting Delaware. town halls. What are, you, what are you hearing? What do farmers want you to do on the Ag Committee? What, well, I think, the big, you know, I was just out at um, the farm out in Delaware, uh, Del Rose Farm, great farm, great dairy farm, about 60-some-odd cows. Also got to meet with uh, some folks at Don's uh, Dairy Supply uh, Store. And it's important because, you know, you, you understand the value and you hear the stories about um, how, you know, I think at one time, some 30, 40 years ago, there were 400 or so dairy farmers mm -hmm. um, in Delaware. Now we're down to about 100. In Sullivan County, there were about 120 years ago, and now we're down 12, wow. right? And so there's a real hit that's happening. And a lot of it, 
the impact is because of the consolidation mm-hmm. and the monopolization mm-hmm. uh, of the ag space uh, to the detriment of um, local small oriented farms. And so the need is to figure out how do we create uh, a more regionally based, locally based infrastructure and marketplace, whether it's with farm hubs, whether it's investment with on-site production and processing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's going to take that kind of uh, incentivization and uh, investment to help build out these uh, these farmers and make sure they have actually have access to that big apple uh, mm-hmm. down the way where you have mm-hmm. tons of unmet demand uh, for organic and locally grown food that we can't tap into because we don't have uh, the local infrastructure. So I think what they're what I'm hearing from a lot of them is uh, we just need uh, more support, not handouts, um, but just to focus on how we actually can spur economic growth. Even something as basic as rural broadband is critically important mm-hmm. uh, for our farmers from a technological standpoint. Um, all these things are critically important, and we don't have it. Cell service, just basic things that can help, you know, uh, and aid farmers, not just farmers even, but, you know, small businesses, all entrepreneurs across the district, but certainly our farmers. Yeah, so I guess uh, Secretary Purdue is going to be uh, giving testimony or speaking in front of the Agriculture Committee at the end of this month. What are some of the questions that you have for the Secretary and about USDA? Well, I mean, I think what I just spoke about in, in many respects is how are we going to um, write the imbalance here, mm. right? What are, the, what are we going to focus on um, to make sure that we uh, make this uh, space more competitive for our small and, and family-owned farms? Um, because they're being bought out, they're being priced out, uh, they're being marginalized. And, you know, we can talk about food promotion programs and value-add programs. Uh, we could talk about farmers market programs. All these are critical. But what are we doing by way of infrastructure uh, to really help um, make sure that our farmers have access to the markets? I think that, to me, is uh, the focus. And I would like to just hear what ideas are being generated, mm-hmm. you know, what types of grant programs, you know, even in the climate change space, you know, how are we going to incentivize farmers uh, through things like carbon sequestration or carbon capturing uh, with real grants, not just burden them economically, right. but also, you know, but actually spur them to invest in these in these products or in these techniques for the benefit of our climate, but also for the benefit uh, of their own uh, endeavor. So it's, it's thinking outside the box, it's diversifying, uh, and, I, and by diversifying, I don't mean telling a farmer you have to go be a wedding planner to get by. <laughs> you know, I mean telling a farmer how That's do we. That's probably wise. <laughs> how do we, no, but I actually heard a farmer tell yeah. me this recently. You know, really? being, yes, they have to like go off and figure yeah, out how to do something. You, they want to be farmers. That's what they want to do. On your they want to farm. Right. right? Yeah, That's what they want to do. <laughs> so yeah. this idea of, you know, telling them, oh, just, you know, be more diverse. Now, by diversification, I mean thinking about the ways in which we, you know, in Congress at the Department of Ag, can think about the diverse ways in which we can help farmers in need across the country. You know, this the conversation around the uh, Green New Deal. I'm wondering, is that something that, like, the freshman class and the all of the Democrats are sort of working together in the House uh, to think about? Like working together on climate change is is there? How is agriculture going to be represented um, in that conversation? Or I'm just wondering yeah. sort of how that's all coming together because it's clearly an, a huge opportunity, but also um, is a concern on some level for the agricultural community. Yeah, and that's why I've chosen you know to focus just on the things that I um, think could be productive um, in terms of bringing folks together in a to do list whether it's investment in green jobs, mm-hmm. uh, asking the Department of Energy to do a study on green jobs and not just renewable energy, not just uh, wind, solar, geothermal, but you know, um, energy efficiency technology. 
you know, we're getting lapped in this space by, by Western Europe. We're thinking about water infrastructure, or as I note, technologies around carbon capture and carbon sequestration to help uh, empower our farmers with real economic in, uh, incentivization. You know, it's, it's really thinking through critically how we invest in these jobs and then train uh, the workers, whether it's through pilot programs at community colleges um, or whether it's just through workforce development programs, but real training to allow folks to make the transition. I think a lot of the conversation on the question of climate change, unfortunately, has become incredibly partisan. Um, and we throw labels around and we throw phrases around and those phrases ultimately end up becoming uh, standalones for a conversation. I'd much rather, uh, you know, keep myself uh, separate and apart from that and focus on actual specific policy. It's policy like making sure we stop propping up the fossil fuel industry with tax credits and subsidies and actually shift it over to renewable energy. Policies like no more fracking. Mm -hmm. Policies like actually building out um, renewable um, uh, energy infrastructure as opposed to focusing on natural gas infrastructure. Like these types of concrete policy agenda items that I think will keep us out of sort of partisan fueled mm -hmm. uh, dialogue that seems to sort of dominate this conversation, unfortunately. So, yes, I'm a member of the freshman class, proud <laughs> member of the freshman class. Before I am any of that, mm -hmm. I'm representative of New York 19. Right. Uh, and I care about how I can bring folks together here for the purpose of dealing with the climate change crisis. Yeah. How do you how do you think uh in a in a swing district to to bring you know to sort of break those partisan divides talking about climate change how do you think that conversation needs to change i mean is it specific i mean yeah, as you, I as you said specifics. like let's think, just talk about I the specifics, specifics not about i think saying what yeah. is your what is your what are you going to legislatively accomplish i put it like this i'm into to, to do this there's things that we can sort of dream up right which you know are always useful right um but at the end of the day you know what are the concrete steps what are the policy things that we can pursue, the policy agenda items mm -hmm. that we can tangibly, concretely measure mm -hmm. um, to actually get to what we want to get, whether it's reducing carbon emissions, whether it's empowering, you know, a green economy with real green jobs. You know, what is the, what are those steps? And then once you have a sense of what, you know, what can happen in that space from a concrete level, you can bring folks together across the aisle to have that conversation. And there's going to be disputes about how to actually go about doing it. But right now we're just talking past each other. While I appreciate the spirit and the desire to want to, you know, push the envelope, um, I think it's very important that we ground ourselves uh, in some concrete pieces of legislation or, or policy items um, to make sure that we can have a debate that is grounded in substance mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, listen, with social media, you know, with uh, news what it is today, you know, they're not inclined to cover this issue in a way that is going to lend itself to robust fact-based, evidence-based debate. They're just mm -hmm. going to run to the headlines. They're going to run to the noise, right? Right, and, and any sort of controversial piece of anything is going to be you know, elevated to the top of the conversation at the expense of real, true dialogue. And this crisis is too important to let it be uh, overwhelmed in that fashion. So one of the issues that you ran on is healthcare. And that is a uh, significant issue for farmers. Uh, farming is one of the most dangerous careers um, that one can pursue, you know, based injuries um, on the farm and, and even just like day to day, just being able to afford it. And, and we have farmers, you know, who are, you know, going to the emergency room still instead of being able to, you know, ac access uh, regular care or they're not, they're still not signing up for health insurance. They'd rather uh, pay a tax penalty. 
it seems like there's, you know, depending on where they're based um, in whatever state that what they would be paying in premiums um, for health insurance, it really varies. And obviously the um, uh, Medicaid and situation um, exacerbates that and whether, you know, states have opted into that. So my my question is like, what what are you planning on actually doing on healthcare? What opportunity is there um, given the political situation to actually make progress on this front and help our farmers get affordable care? Yeah, I think it's a shame that we're the wealthiest country on the face of the earth. And yet, uh, despite that fact, the only developed country in the world uh, without some form of universal health care. Um, I think it's imperative uh, that we achieve it. And, you know, many different countries uh, have different forms of universal care. Um, you know, some have single payer, others uh, have a public option. We were only uh, one vote away uh, from a public option back when the ACA was passed. Uh, my preference at this point is to introduce a public option, um, primarily because, one, um, we're right there and I think we can get it done. Two, um, you know, it doesn't completely overhaul uh, one-sixth of our economy. Uh, but what it does do uh, is introduce a public competitor uh, into the private insurance marketplace, which right now has a monopoly on the health care system unless you qualify for Medicaid or Medicare. Uh, in other words, uh, we are all beholden to the profit motive. And if we introduce the choice for folks to opt into Medicare, in essence, make it available to everybody, um, I think what comes out of that is a floor within the marketplace that all private insurance providers now have to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. It'll drive down premiums. It'll drive down deductibles. It'll also save a lot of money in costs. Uh, Medicare uh, costs uh, seven times less uh, to process its claims compared to private insurance because the absence of all the middlemen. Uh, and then you also free up the economy. If you're a small business owner, you're on the hook for you know, providing employer-based insurance. You now can tell your employee, well, there's an option now in the marketplace called Medicare. Uh, and if you're an employee and you feel trapped you know, at your employee, employment um, because of the health care provided and you feel like you're not sure if it's going to be good or, or affordable elsewhere, mm -hmm. well, now you have that option to choose um, Medicare. That type of freedom uh, is how you also create more activity in the economy. And from there, you can grow the economy. So there's a lot of benefits, in my estimation, from uh, introducing a, a public option. On top of that, and I have co-sponsored a bill that does this, just this, we need to make sure that Medicare has negotiating power uh, with big pharma. And that'll bring down a lot of the drug prices, which obviously have um, a lot to do with why our healthcare is so expensive. Mm -hmm. If we accomplish those two things, that is a massive transformative step uh, to universalize our healthcare system. From a practical perspective, is it possible? Like, do, Absolutely. do can we get bipartisan I, I, I think, support for an think, idea like that? I think Yes. Um, like I said, we were not that far away mm -hmm. um, back when the ACA was first passed. And I've met with a lot of individuals um, who uh, are dealing with children who have special needs or um, unique health uh, scenarios um, who, you know, have, have made the point that, you know, they like having the flexibility. You know, they might even be dual citizens, you know, from Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. and I can think of a couple of people who I've met who, who choose to come to the United States to get their care because of the sophistication mm -hmm. and the choice element within right. our healthcare system. So, and I think there's a value in that choice and there's a value uh, in that sophistication, but more than anything, there needs to be uh, the choice to opt into a public competitor. And so what you do by, by providing this choice component is you bring uh, a lot of people to the table, right? A lot of folks who certainly all can agree, we need to lower the cost of healthcare, lower premiums, lower deductibles. Um, and some folks might say, 
I want to do that and join Medicare. Other folks might want to just say, well, I want to continue to operate within the private insurance marketplace, but I also prefer that those costs be brought down significantly in the presence yeah. of, a, of a competitor mm-hmm. in this space will do that. Right. And so now you, you've brought together uh, a diverse set of people mm-hmm. all around the common goal of lowering health care costs. What, what do you think was missing in the last debate? Why do you, I mean, if it's just one vote, Jules, why, why certain, couldn't we overcome that? A little, little thing called lobbying, you know, right. meet people, yeah. people at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember all the specifics. I don't yeah. know. I know that uh, the late Ted Kennedy was a part of that. I know Lieberman, I think, also may have changed course at some point. Uh, I, I don't remember all the specifics, but we were very close. Yeah. Um, uh, to getting there, um, and unfortunately couldn't couldn't get it done. But I think uh, obviously there's a lot of energy around uh, you know the fight today, mm-hmm. uh, and I just hope that we all can come together and understand here that we have an opportunity to achieve universal health care. Uh, and our one goal, our focus, ought to be to no longer remain the only developed country in the world um, uh, without some form of universal health care. And if we all get behind that, um, then ultimately. Um, if we can get there, that's a good thing. No matter how it looks, if we're, the, if we're no longer the only developed country in the world, that's a good thing mm-hmm. to stop being that. And it's, it's not a good stat. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a list you want to be not, on, right? You don't want to be on that list. All right, so I have one last question for you. I know you are over time here. Um, we have young, young people all over the country, young farmers, who their stories are really valuable. Um, and I think... They need, they need to feel empowered to elevate their voices. And I also, you know, feel like they, um, you know, they, they need help, right? They need help from the Agriculture Committee and their members of Congress. So as a member of Congress, um, I'm wondering how should farmers and you know, residents of your district and um, across the country, how should they get through to their member of Congress? Like, well, how, how should they um, make sure their stories are heard? Well, I, I think it's absolutely imperative um, that um, you have a representative, first and foremost, who's accessible. And mm-hmm. uh, in too many places across the country, that's not the case because mm. we have too many representatives in D.C. Uh, who have walled themselves off from the very community uh, that put them there in the first place. I make it a point uh, to be as accessible uh, as as anybody can be, um, you know, with the number of town halls we're doing, uh, with the number of offices we're opening up in district, mm-hmm. uh, up to five, I think, by uh, when it's all said and done, hopefully. Um, you know, the transparency on our website, I think that's very important. And then connecting with um, the community on the ground through an advisory council, right? right. So we're putting together an agriculture advisory mm-hmm. council. I'm yep. sure you're aware of that, yeah. right? We, in the same vein, we're doing that with veterans, doing that with small mm-hmm. business. So it's building that bridge from the ground up and as opposed to, you know, from top down uh, and staying engaged and, and with the community. Um, I think the more and more there is that kind of uh, synergy uh, and constant communication, the better off. I, I can't do my job as well as I want to do it in the absence of that kind of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, I take the ideas that I learned from the young farmers. I, I can, you know, we sit down in a meeting, we go through all the funds that have been appropriated or have been authorized under the farm bill. And I can understand, okay, well, here's why this authorization would mean so much for young farmers, or this is why this particular program, we really need the funds to be appropriated here. I need to hear that from the farmers to know, okay, I need to really be a loud voice on this when it comes up on the Act Committee. And the more I am armed with information to do that, the better off I can be uh, as an advocate for farmers. And that's, to me, the most important thing to to do. I see myself as an extension uh, Mm. of the community. And the only way that I can truly be an extension is to literally build that bridge. 
I mean, clearly some of the onus is on the member to yeah. to be open to yes. that communication. You it would is. encourage our young farmers to just walk it walk into an office. Oh, absolutely. Write a letter. I guess that, get on the yeah. phone. I mean, you, you, yes, I see what I see. What do you, you, do you want us to tag you, you on social media? Like, yes, tag <laughs> me. You know, get, call our offices. How should people get through? You know, email us. Um, visit our offices. We have one in Kingston. We have one in Del High. We're opening, just opened one up in Oneonta, not Seagull County. We're looking at space in Columbia County, space in uh, uh, Sullivan County. So, you know, we are um, going to be everywhere having mobile offices as well. Right. So, you know, we're there. Um, and you can find us on um, our social media. You can find us, um, you know, Rep. Antonio Delgado. You can find us on our website. You know, we're, we're going to be uh, doing town halls. Um, so we're working, uh, and I would encourage all young farmers, all young people to stay engaged, uh, and, you know, make sure that where you can't participate, uh, you seize upon that opportunity. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks Joining for first member of Congress in our, uh, I'm happy to, to be the first <laughs> Coast podcast video. Thank you so uh, much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Congressman Delgado, for joining us here at Radio Kingston. Jessica Manley is here with me today, and we're going to talk about our impressions of this interview. Lindsay and Jessica here live in the studio together in person. It's so fun. It is really fun. (laughs) It's fun to be here together. And we just wanted to chat a little bit, check in about the Delgado interview. My understanding of the Delgado interview is there was uh, a bit of a drama behind the scenes, Technical. So, <laughs> so much drama, so much drama where it almost didn't happen. It almost it almost wasn't available. It almost wasn't available. Yeah. Uh, what there was a problem with the soundboard. And when we played back the sound, we sounded like robots. Oh, no. Full on robots. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying robots. But... Um, Congressman Delgado's wonderful staffer, Laura Epstein, brought an iPhone and just like plopped it down in the middle of our conversation and hit record. And I think just so like audio (laughs) (laughs) and actually and the audio worked and we were able to use it. But anyways, that's why this episode sounds a little bit weird. Not as good, but it's fine. What was it like having him here? Uh, What was it like? It was great. It was really nice. I mean, having in-person interviews is always so much nicer than doing them over the phone or over the computer or whatever because this was just our the, first... like you miss things right it's just like not as the conversation's like a tiny bit stilted because you can't see people's faces like you're missing you know how they're communicating right fully he was our first in-person interview there haven't been very many that we've we've done in person most are online and starting with our member of congress it was a big yeah yeah we went <laughs> went big <laughs> went big <laughs> In listening to your interview with him, I really was struck by first what he was saying about how he hadn't been really drawn to politics. I mean, he'd been a student of political science, Mm. but hadn't originally wanted to get into politics, but just felt this call to be somebody who really served people and was acting out of a place of like loving people and wanting to represent them. Mm. And that really resonated with me, but also the conversation about finding a way to meet in the middle when you're representing this purple district and it's such a divide between rural constituents and people that used to live in New York City and trying to find a way that you can build these bridges and and meet in the middle. And I was thinking about 
our work at the coalition and how we're also often trying to find that way to represent everybody and stay big tent. And I was wondering if you just could like talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you find the balance between representing everyone, staying big tent, but then also working on certain issues that kind of require you to take a side, like climate change, for example. Mm. Um, it's a tricky thing, I think, as a representative, but also in the work that we do. Thoughts yeah, on that? well, I think Delgado's right in that he's focused on issues, very specific work. Like he clearly is back, not fully on board with the Green New Deal, right? Right, right. Um, and wants to like, have some a little bit of distance, you know, from from that proposal. I mean, I mean, I think in part it's like he's not fully in control of the messaging, right? Mm-hmm. It's like not his thing. But I also think in a district like this one, that Green New Deal, it's it can be very divisive, right? Right. And people hear it in very different ways. But the way sort of you get around that is being super specific about what you're talking about. So it's harder for people to attach their their own ideas, mm-hmm. positive or negative, to the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about the issues and it's about the to-do list. In my mind, that's that's critical. It's We're talking about specific things in the same way people talk about like industrial agriculture, like these blanket statements, right? right? right. And that is like a rallying cry for some people and that's very hurtful and difficult for others. But amongst those two groups, maybe we'll say liberals and conservatives or Republicans or Democrats or rural people and city people, whatever it is, it's like sometimes those big ideas, although I think the country right now is called to big ideas, but if you can sometimes just focus on the smaller things where there is agreement um, and consensus and get those things done, then you start to build a coalition, I think, that can really think bigger and that's certainly what we've done at Young Farmers Coalition is really just like base everything in economics and values and just and specificity. And, you know, even I think some of the things that we have pushed on, such as like racial equity issues that I think can be certainly more divisive or just not fully understood by our entire organization and, and membership we're able to like bring fact and specificity around those um, ideas in a way that I think people can come together mm-hmm. around. So obviously we're here in his district. He is our representative and we're thinking about these kind of local issues, but yeah. just kind of thinking big picture about your conversation with him. Like what, what did you feel were some of the, the lessons from your conversation with him that are like most applicable to our broader listenership and agriculture across the country? I mean, I think, number one, we need to be having these conversations with every single member of Congress and folks on the Ag Committee. We need to really ask them what they're going to get done, you know, and mm-hmm. push them to understand the issue of s- issues facing small and beginning farmers. Because if we're not at the table, then they're going to hear something else, right? They're going to get they're going to have other policy proposals put in front of them. Mm-hmm. So I think a call for accountability and transparency and conversation and dialogue with members mm-hmm. of the Ag Committee is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was a takeaway for me is that he, I mean, he doesn't have a background in ag policy or in farming or, right. right? Like he's been living in New York City. He moved back up here. You know, this is, he grew up just outside the district. 
and has moved back up here, but he doesn't have an ag background. So it's a steep learning curve. I mean, farm policy is a steep learning curve for farmers mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. And for beginning farmers, right? these, mm-hmm. you know, the laws are difficult to follow. Anyways, it's just, it goes on I'm and on. I'm still intimidated by it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it, just recognizing that we have to help members of Congress understand the policies and how they play out um, on the ground because many of them are learning on the job. Mm-hmm. They're learning how to fundraise. They're learning how to be a member of Congress. But they're also just learning about how, you know, 1% of the population makes its living being farmers. Right? Yeah. That's the other thing, just to recognize that so few people really understand farm policy and that every single farmer has an incredibly important role in in, in educating their member of Congress. Yeah. I've been so impressed by how willing he is to get out there on the farm yeah, ask questions totally he's yeah. always on instagram talking with dairy farmers or just ask, asking questions about their experience which mm-hmm. is is pretty remarkable i don't know i mean i it, does that seem to be standard do you see that from a lot of other representatives is yeah it- i mean it's cool that he's doing town halls because that became such a issue with john faso is that he like was really minimizing his public appearances. And Mm. I don't know. I mean, it was such an intense campaign. Mm. Um, I mean, he's just fearful of people like shouting him down, I imagine, right? Right. (laughs) In these public venues. Um, So it's, it's, I think, good um, for this district to have a representative that's like Mm. willing to, to be out there and talk to people and, you know, have a open and public dialogue. Yeah. But I don't know how I don't know how many members of Congress are doing that. I think he is going to have a really tough re-election. Like no doubt. It's going to be really tough, you know. I I feel like he he's already like running for that re-election right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Like if he does not make deep and meaningful and real connections with people across this district, every single day of the week, mm-hmm. then he's going to have a hard time yeah. next time around. It's a, it's a very tough district. I think one thing that I hope, you know, I don't know, one thing that I pressed on, it's going to also just be hard for anybody to make progress right now, you know, as a, anyone yeah. in the house to actually do something beyond introduce something that they would like to see. Right. To actually find a path forward, like on healthcare, which he's been so vocal on clearly like that's that's his sweet spot he really understands healthcare. that's what he campaigned on but what can actually be done other than defending the affordable care act which is of course incredibly important but i think that's going to be tricky too it's like how so you so you went to congress what do you have to show for it and i think people are gonna want to know like what progress has been made but obviously that's that's pretty challenging in this um current environment so what's your advice to him? What's my advice? <laughs> I mean, I think he's on a good path. He's yeah. like, he's taking a page from Chris Gibson's book. You know, he's like out there every day, meeting people. He's working really hard. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, he's not taking it for granted at this point. So what did you make of the interview? I thought it was great. What are the questions we missed? Like, what else should we have asked him? I don't know if I feel like there was anything I wanted you to ask him. What did, what did you want to ask him that you, that you thought about later? Yeah, I guess I wish I, I would have liked to ask him about money and politics. 
because he raised so much money for this race. This yeah. was like one of the most expensive. It was yeah. like on, on the top five list of, yeah. of expensive races. And so a lot of people have given him money yeah. in support of his campaign. A lot of people who are not from New York's 19th, a mm-hmm. lot of city folks, mm-hmm. like who is he really serving at the end of the day? Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like yeah. are, are there other pressures on him? from a fundraising perspective, from a party perspective that like, we're unaware who is of. he accountable to? Who is he accountable yeah. to? And is, like, my vote at, worth as much as some bundler, right? Right. <laughs> or, like, someone who's maxing out their donation. And I think he would say absolutely, given our conversation, but I, I wonder in smaller ways or bigger ways, right? Like, is that going to just influence legislation that he introduces in small in in ways that are small or big i just, anyways i given that money had such a huge impact on this campaign right and he spent so much time i'm sure with those donors leading up to it how is that going to play out um mm-hmm. in his work in yeah. dc because i just can't imagine there isn't some influence and i think that this is like a problem across it's the always board a question. with money and yeah. politics mm-hmm. right but i didn't get to ask him that and i guess that's something that's just on my mind. It's like, okay, you won. You raised all this money. Yeah. Who are you accountable to at this point? Yeah. And can you still listen to your voters and be true to the needs of New York 19 in the way that I think you want to be? That's a good question. Maybe we can email him. We'll email Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> He'll get it right back to us. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Thanks Lindsay. Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. That was really nice to have someone sort of debrief with me. Okay, so have you rated and reviewed this podcast? We would be so grateful if you could take a minute to do that now because it helps more people find the show. And we love your feedback. We read every review. I know that many of you are now back on the farm full time. So this is a great moment to listen to back episodes and tell fellow crew members about the show. This episode was produced by Jessica Manley. It was edited by Hannah Beal and recorded at the studios of Radio Kingston. See you next week.